We're in 1 Corinthians 16, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 24 here in just in a moment. Now, do you, if I were to ask you, do you have any special letters that you cherish, that people have written you over the years? Do, you maybe, do some maybe come to mind? Maybe you've got a letter from your beloved, you know, maybe from a courtship long ago, something like that that you hold on to. Maybe you've got a letter from your dad that your dad wrote to you at one point, and you held on to it over all these years. And maybe there's some key phrases or thoughts in there that you've just cherished over the years. <clears throat> I walked into um, the president's office at Breen Bible Institute recently, and uh, I knock, I knock before I just walk in. Um, I'm a good citizen that way. But anyway, I went in, and Dr. Nix, who's the president there, and by the way, that's where I'm full-time employed um, in the ministry there. But, but he was, he was uh, writing and signing the letters that he sends out to our, our donors. We have donors. Our ministry exists because of donations at Breen Bible Institute. Very little money comes through, like, tuition for students, and it's, it's a totally a, it's a, it's a donor-driven thing. It's the believers in Christ that make that ministry possible. Uh, and uh, how any of us that are there have any salary or anything. It's coming from people who believe in the mission and the ministry of the Institute. And so they, the, every, every month, letters go out to say thank you. Thank you for partnering with us and helping us and being with us in this. And it's a printed letter, you know, from a, from, you know, it's printed on a printer. It's typed out and printed. And, and yet, Dr. Nix will take those letters, and at the end of each one, he'll write a little something and sign it personally from him. And I walked in, and he was finishing up one, and, uh, you know, and I, I have to joke, like, don't forget the XOXO, you know, <laughs> hugs and kisses, Dr. Nix, though. He likes it when I say that, by the way. Um, but, but, you know, what, you th- I, I asked the question, why, would it, why is it good to do something like that? You know, you can't sit there and write a handwritten letter to every one of the donors, as good as that would be, but you can take a moment and put a little, little word of encouragement, a little saying, uh, you know, something down that line, and put a little little personal signature on it with that, and so that's what he does, and 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 that gives it a personal touch. That that shows some thoughtfulness in it. Uh, just a few extra words of kindness or encouragement can go a long, long way. And as we come to the end of this letter, uh, we see Paul sort of doing that. He is. He is literally, as we're going to see, he is literally taking pen in hand and signing off on this letter and writing a few closing words of encouragement and even a slight bit of admonishment, as we'll see, as he ends this epistle. Again, just putting, making it personal. And, and we're going to kind of see this theme as we walk through these verses of just how important it is in the Christian life for us to be personal with one another, relational, to, 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 to be encouraging and loving that way um, because that just goes so far in someone's life. It just goes so far. And so we see that. Um, it's simply in this portion of Scripture this morning, Paul's loving farewell to the Corinthians as he ends this epistle. And we're going to try to take away some important points out of this farewell that we'll see here. I'm pretty sure as he was writing these final words, I guess in his mind, he's probably thinking, I wonder how they're going to receive this. You know, at this point, you know, in our Bibles, it's 16 chapters. It wasn't laid out chapters and verses when he wrote it. Obviously, that came later uh, as we did that in the Scripture to be able to track where things are. But 
I just kind of wonder what was going through his mind and heart as he took all this time and, and this letter's been penned and he's been speaking on this issue and that issue and, you know, please move away from this and please move away from that. You know, let's not be into idolatry. Let's not get into a drunken brawl at the communion time. Let's not, you know, okay horrible, horrible sexual immorality. And he said some pretty stern things, and this all been recorded here and written down, and now he's, he's putting this final touches on it, and I wonder what he's thinking, what they're going to do with this. How are they going to receive it? He may have been excited to think they're going to read it, and I think God's going to work, and they're going to they're take these things to heart. But I bet there was a, there's still that thinking of like, but they may not, and they may really reject me even more and not like me. <laughs> you know, and I just kind of wonder even what was going through his mind as he's, he's finishing this out. So let's take a look here. Again, we read it in our scripture reading, so we'll just kind of walk through it verse by verse as we go. But the first thing I want to show as we look at the first couple of verses in this portion is, I think the admonition, and I'll summarize it or voice it this way, to treat each other like family. I really think you could say that's kind of at the heart of what Paul's saying here. Treat each other like family. Again, in verse 19, he says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And it's clear to us right away the key word there is greet, right? Greet, greet, greet. Greetings and greeting going around there. And the point I want to make on these two verses is that each member of the body of Christ is worthy of our attention. Each member of the body of Christ is worthy of our attention. And, you know, I think you can see that here in Paul's attitude toward even even something as simple or as overlooked as greeting, of just greeting people and listening to people. We see in this text with the greetings, we see this. It's a simple expression. It just shows visible kindness. It's just, it's just showing that, right? Uh, the word for greet in, in, in the Greek, it just kind of has the idea to welcome or pay respect. And if you look at the etymology a little bit deeper, it even, talks, it even has sort of the idea of to draw to oneself. So the greeting, I don't think Paul just meant, you know, Tells your folks I says hi. You know, I don't know that he just meant that. Just tell them I said hi. I think he's actually greeting in that culture meant a little bit more than just a verbal like, how you doing, you know, and, and move on. It was a little bit warmer, a little bit more connective, if you will, to draw to oneself. So it was, it really was a directing of attention to a person in that way. A simple way to direct your attention to somebody, acknowledge that they're there, that, that they exist, and to go and, and to, to share words with them so that there can be connection and relationship there. So um, greeting, and that just simple term of greeting, there's a lot of things that are inherent in this idea that he's, he's sharing here. And so he's giving these greetings, and he does this at, you know, almost at the end of every of the, all the epistles. There's probably some words of greetings and so forth. Um, but he starts by saying, the churches of Asia greet you. The churches of Asia are... That's a Roman province of Asia. It's not talking about Asia as we think today. It's the Roman province, which today is modern-day Turkey, and Ephesus was uh, a capital city in that region. 
And he's in Ephesus when he's writing this epistle, uh, as we can discern. And he may be talking about the, the area of Ephesus and the region just around that. But he might be talking about the whole province. And that's a big, that was a big area. That would be like, like the size of a, of a state in the U.S. or something. You know, I don't know which state, but it would, be a, it would be state size. And so he may have in mind everybody. But already the, the idea that he's saying the churches in these parts send you greetings is you can just see it even, even at the larger level of the body of Christ. Paul is seeking connection, relationship. You know, to be aware of what other Christians and other places are dealing with and going through and, and how God is working in different places. You know, he, the, the, obviously the churches in Corinth knew the churches he was talking about. Paul, Paul was the main source of that connectivity between the different churches. But it does show the importance of, you know, having connectivity through the body of Christ. You know, and it's interesting... When you look at the body of Christ, and some people look at it, you could look at it in a theological lens, and, you know, the, the, the body of Christ, there is a local aspect of it where that's how we're, you know, we're experiencing body life today. We've come in our local group, and we've come, you know, into how we structure things and how we do things together, and we're fellowshipping together in a local sense. And yet the body of Christ, this isn't all of it, is it? This isn't all of it. And, and, and we praise the Lord for that because there's, there's, there's millions of members of the body of Christ around the world. And we look at the larger picture of the body of Christ and the word we sometimes use is the universal aspect of the body of Christ. That's worldwide even. And we think of that. And you could even go beyond that. It actually spans time. All the way back to Paul, to today, all the believers, all part of one body of Christ, right? So it has its local and universal aspect or expression and he's been talking to a local church all this time right but yet it's never apart from the idea that you're not the only ones there's other people out here there's other local churches out there there's other christians out there and and you know there's just that idea of being mindful of others and thinking about that and it's so good i know we all cherish at our church when we do have missionaries come through or others, and we get a picture of like what's going on in churches and maybe in a different country across a continent somewhere. What is God doing in other people's lives around the world? And so there is a, a blessedness that comes out of having some idea of what God is doing in the other churches, in 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 uh, whether it's near or far. And again, He shows the need that there should be some level of connectivity, of seeking to know what God's doing. And another thing I like about that idea is that geography does not separate the body of Christ. That we're part of something that it doesn't matter where you came from or who you are or what, where you grew up or what language you speak or what country you live in. Jesus Christ can unite you with himself and with every other member of the body of Christ. And that is one of the most radical ideas of biblical Christianity that there is no difference when you come into Jesus Christ. And it is one of the most radical things. Because no other, I don't know of any other faith that really teaches that idea. Some faiths even still have a class system in, in, their own, in their own fabric and foundation of what they are, but not Christianity because it sets you free in Christ. You become a son or daughter of the living God, and you have a whole big family. And you have your families that you come together with weekly at the local, and then you have a family that goes way beyond 
across both geography and even time. Paul next mentions Aquila and Priscilla especially. They greet you heartily. And I like the word heartily. The word for that in the Greek is the word for many or much. And he's just saying, like, they greet you much. Big greeting. Big greeting from Aquila and Priscilla. It's kind of like saying, you know, it's like when we say, give them a big hug from me. (laughs) Not a little hug, a big, much. You know, that's the idea there. And Aquila and Priscilla are a special couple. We're going to come back to them in a little bit. And so we'll move on for now. And then verse 20 gives some greetings from some brethren, and we're not sure exactly who the brethren are. He just said the churches greet you. A specific couple greets you with the church that's in their house in verse 19. So another church. And then he says the brethren. It's like, well, who are the brethren then? Are they not people, are they not part of these churches that you just said greet us? Are they a different group? And in some, you know, we don't really know exactly what he means by brethren. He may mean the people they knew specifically. Like we, we earlier, last week, we talked about uh, Stephanus and his household and the three men that came, and, and maybe he's talking about those brethren, or maybe there were more that had come from Corinth. But anyway, there's others there that they also want to say, hey, tell them, tell them, tell them hello from us, and we're for them, and give that idea from us as well. And then verse 20 gives us our favorite commandment in Christianity, greet each other with a holy kiss. (laughs) Greet each other with a holy kiss. That's enough to keep a lot of people away from church, by the way, (laughs) if they see that verse. They'll be like, I don't know what's going on over there. I don't know if I'm going to be part of that. Don't start with that Bible verse when you're talking about the Lord with somebody, because you might scare them off, uh, at least in our, our culture. But we understand that what he's saying, first of all, the emphasis is on greet one another, and that's that's a big deal because the Corinthians obviously had been dividing and separating and fighting and all this strife and and grudges and probably giving each other the silent treatment. And there's no room for that in Christianity. There's no room for that. Every member of the body of Christ is worthy of our attention. And if there's bad blood, you do all you can to reconcile and live peaceably. But, you know, they weren't doing that. And they needed, like, you know, greet one another. You know, you guys need to come together and be the body you're called to be. And when he says the holy kiss, it's our understanding is that is a cultural application of the idea. The idea is to greet, but in the culture, in a lot of places in the Mediterranean world, that was the natural greeting of a, you know, the, the kiss on the cheek. And maybe in some cultures it's even the lip. But, um, but you know, there's even places like that today. And then, uh, you know... Um, COVID came in, and we didn't have to worry about that anymore. No, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Um, but that was a cultural application, and we don't, so we don't pull the cultural application there. We understand the emphasis is, is greet, and that could be handshake. That can be a hug as appropriate. Be sensitive to others, by the way, when you greet them. Uh, uh, be careful with just going up hugging everybody. Uh, but you know what I mean. It's, it's the, there's appropriate means in every culture to give a warm greeting to give a warm greeting, and that's the idea. The kiss thing, that's the culture. And never, never in the Bible does, I don't think that God means to like lock us in to first century cultural applications because that's, some religions do that. They try to lock you into some cultural application, locked in, a, locked in a bubble in history and make that a spiritual thing, and I don't think that's what Paul's doing. So this is very much a cultural application, I, but the idea, again, is to greet. 
So Paul is seeking not to leave anybody out of the greetings here. Uh, Again, he is encouraging the body of Christ to warmly greet each other and treat each other as family. Again, not to ignore people, not to be cold toward people, but to give attention toward one another in the, in the sense of brotherly love. And one thing I'll say, too, is one of the things we, t- we think, when we think of the idea of greeting one another, and again, it's a very simple idea, but to go, to go beyond just, again, the verbal, hi, how you doing, the typical, I don't know, even our cultural thing is, is, is to evaluate our own cultural expressions and to say, What's, what can I really do to express what God's wanting to do? Even something as simple as greeting. How do I use the vehicle of greeting as a relationship building thing in, in my Christian life and really, really try to reach out to people? And I'd like to share something, and it's from Gene Getz in the book Building Up One Another, written years ago. But he, but he tells the story of when he once attended his own church at an evening surface, or surface, service, and he was walking around, and he was greeting people and saying hello, and he walked by a young man named Bruce, and he said, hey, Bruce, how you doing? And he kept on walking, and he's greeting people, you know, and doing that. And then, and then one of the church elders came up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, and, and said, you know, Gene, you... You asked Bruce how he was doing, but you just kept walking. Bruce started, was trying to answer you. Bruce started talking. And he was like, oh, my goodness, what did he say? And Bruce said, he said, he, I'm not doing very well. My brother was in a motorcycle wreck today. And so, of course, Gene felt terrible, you know, because he's just doing the typical cultural, hey, how you doing? Move on, right? And, uh, and he missed, missed a little bit of an opportunity there to really listen, to stop and pause and, like, use this as a vehicle to really give attention to a person for a moment, Right? And, and, and listen to what's going on with them. And something that gets rights on this is when we ask people how they're doing, we ought to stay around long enough to hear what they say. Exchanging formalities is natural in every culture. Every time we say hello doesn't have to be a serious exchange. But frequently, we never get beyond the surface. In fact, at times, we hope people won't really tell us how they're doing. We don't want to be bothered. <laughs> I think he's being honest there. If, if we're all serious, a lot of us are in a hurry. That's usually the thing. It's not so much we want to be bothered, but we're we're busy. I got to move on. But there is an important lesson in that, and to like be sensitive to like, am I really listening to people? You know, and you know, you don't always have to be like, we got to have a conversation. But you know, there's a balance there, as he brings out. <laughs> and I share that because I read that book when I was a student in Marine Bible Institute 20 years ago. And that one has always stuck with me. I've never forgot that. And it comes to mind once in a while to sort of say, yeah, I need to slow down and listen to people a little bit more. And it stuck with me. And I'm certainly not perfect at it, but that story has, has resonated with me over the years and that instruction of greet one another and what can, what, how you can use that in, in the Christian life. And I think in a similar sense, that's what Paul's doing here. It's an expression of us treating each other like family, giving our attention to each other, and living body life in that way. As we go on here, we want to say each member of the body needs dependable friends. And I do want to take a few minutes and spend some time just going over the story of Aquila and Priscilla. You, you know, a lot of times in our Bible reading, we read names, we read right over the names, and we probably don't stop to ponder, like, what's behind that name? I mean, Aquila and Priscilla, by the way, are mentioned multiple times in the Bible. 
they actually stand out as some of the off, most off-mentioned people in Paul's letters. So it's like, wow, what, who were this couple? Aquila the man and Priscilla, or Prisca the wife. And we're going to go through a series of verses here and just see how that in Paul's life, he did have some very dependable, loyal, spiritual friends. And Aquila and Priscilla were two of the ones that came to the top of the list usually. There were others like Luke and so forth, but Aquila and Priscilla show up a lot. So I'm going to pull a few verses on the screen, and I want to first tell you about their first meeting. It's recorded in Acts 18, 1 through 3. And it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And by the way, this is Paul's first visit to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And it's our understanding that Paul came to Corinth in 51 AD, so that's when they met, around 51 AD. And notice they have a similar trade. They're of of the same kinsmen, if you will. They're both Jewish people, and they're both in the tent making, so that seemed to help bring them together and forge a friendship. And and, um, they also, uh, we'll find out, are believers in Christ. So they meet then in 51 AD as fellow tent makers in Corinth, and obviously Paul's writing to the Corinthians, so this is where Aquila and Priscilla had had lived. So when he says they greet you, they knew a lot of those people because they'd been there. They used to live there at this point, okay? So they first met there, and as we're going to go on to another verse, and you see sort of now, you start to see more of their story and the, the steps of faith they took and how they were an encouragement to Paul and others. And we look at Acts 18, 18 and 19, and it says, So Paul still remained a good while, that's in Corinth. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Paul, he's, he's trying to get to Jerusalem, so he's traveling back. And they go with him, and they go to Ephesus. And there are some believers in Ephesus, it seems like, at that point. But, but Aquila and Priscilla, they stay there. And that's interesting. So they were willing to leave Corinth, and now they go to Ephesus, and they're willing to stay in Corinth. So they're, they're very mobile, to say the least, and they're very about serving the Lord. And you can already start to see what would have drawn them together with Paul. They would have shared many, many things, uh, you know, the spiritual bond and desire to minister to people. And they came to Ephesus about 52 AD. And while there, they're the ones that helped another guy named Apollos come to understand more about the Lord. Apollos is another uh, fairly prominent a New Testament individual that Paul writes about. He's been mentioned in 1 Corinthians a few times at this point. He was a teacher and preacher and, and very eloquent at that and, and had a very public ministry in Corinth. But anyway, we'll look at Acts 18, 24 through 26, and just see Aquila and Priscilla and their interaction with Apollos. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. 
When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it's interesting to me, and you see the hand of God, because these people were in Corinth just a little while ago, and, Paul, and God brought Paul to Corinth, and now God brought Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla to Ephesus, and now God had arranged for Aquila and Priscilla to stay in Ephesus, and now God arranges for Apollos to come into their life. And what do they display? They display a willingness to go and talk to somebody and to go and, 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 and be hospitable to somebody and to minister to somebody. And they come alongside Apollos, and they actually teach him what they've learned, probably from Paul, about God's grace. And then Apollos, he only knew the baptism of John. He's way back here in his understanding. There's been a lot happened since John. I mean, this is like, 30 years, this is like 20 years later since the baptism of John or even, beyond, even further than that. And so they bring him up to speed on what God's doing and what Paul's teaching, and he comes up to that, and now he's embracing what God's doing, all because of Aquila and Priscilla. And we understand that they resided in Ephesus a long while. They're actually there when Paul returned. He came back to Ephesus later, and they were still there. And when he wrote this epistle to the Corinthians that we're reading This is Paul now having returned to Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla are with him. And if you're wanting to know, it was about 54 AD when he's writing this epistle. And they, now they were in Corinth, they're still, excuse me, they're still in Ephesus ministering, where they had reached out to Apollos, and now this, our passage tells us something about them. They had a church in their house. So they were hosting a church. They sound like pretty good friends to you at this point. I'd probably give them a chance. We'll, read, we'll go to another verse for a moment, because this is interesting, because this isn't where they stopped, by the way. They didn't retire in uh, Ephesus at this point, if you will. At some point, they moved back to Rome, where they had been cast out by the emperor years before. Because in Romans 16, 3 through 5, Paul tells the believers in Rome to greet them, who are now in Rome, and the church that's in their house now in Rome. So they had a church in Ephesus in their house, and then they eventually moved to Rome and had a church in their house there. It says in Romans 15, 3 through 5, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. And Romans was probably written about 56 or 57 A.D. So at this point, Paul's known him for six years or so. They've already been with him through thick and thin. And, uh, and I just think it's interesting to ponder, like, how many, how many friends do you have that you've known around six years? And how close are you? And how have you grown over the last, you know, five, six years, if that's how long you've known each other? So they had moved, at some point they had moved from Ephesus to Rome. And then they didn't even stop there. Because in his very last letter that we have, 2 Timothy, Paul mentions them one last time. And in 2 Timothy 4.19, he's writing to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. So this is fast forward a few years, about 10 years, and now Timothy's in Ephesus, Paul's imprisoned in Rome, basically in a dungeon at this point, and he's writing to Timothy, who now is ministering in Ephesus, and he says in 2 Timothy 4.19, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. And so, even when Paul had been 
abandoned by so many over the years, and you find that. You know what he actually says in this same epistle, 2 Timothy, all in Asia have forsaken me? Contrast that to what we read in our passage when he says, the churches of Asia greet you. And then, ten, and then in about, uh, about 13 years later, he's saying, all in Asia have a, a turn from me. Hmm. Some serious things had happened in that decade, hadn't they? But some people remained faithful, Timothy, but also Aquila and Priscilla. And I just think it's worthwhile knowing a little bit of their story and seeing how they persevered over the years, over different locations, over different challenges. They stayed in a relationship with Paul the Apostle. They didn't abandon him when others were. And, and when Paul is writing 2 Timothy about 67 AD, he has known them at least for um, about 16 years. And through several moves, they were clearly a type of like missionary couple as they would go to place to place to minister. But they had this deep friendship with the apostle over 16 years. They were people he could lean on in his struggles. And I think about that. How many friends do we have that we've known 16 years, 20 years, 25 years, that we would look at the same way Paul would look at Aquila and Priscilla and say, I can talk to them. I want to hear what they have to say. I love my time when I'm with them. They encourage me. They refresh me. We have the same heart and mind for God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many friends do you have that you go back 20 years like that? And, and, and I'm blessed that I have a few. I have a few. And I've been blessed to have several friends like that over the years. And I think of uh, an occasion where some of us were able to put our friendship to the test a little bit. But several years ago, uh, boy, I can't remember. It was, it's probably been 13 or 14 years ago. But there was a brother, a friend of mine and of Pastor Wagast and of Pastor Lynn named Dean Reinheimer. And he was in need. He lived in a small town in northern Indiana. And they lived in a house in which the roof had become quite dilapidated. And insurance was threatening cancellation on them because they're not going to cover that house if the roof's not fixed. And so he was in a bit of a, a, a bind. And it wasn't something in their budget to replace a roof and have it done. So Pastor Wallagas called some of us up. And when I say some of us, there was a group of us that that came, I don't remember if it was about five or six of us and, you, and Pastor Walgett, we came to Dean's house in a place called Eaton, Indiana, uh, for a weekend with the goal of replacing his roof. And we came from multiple states. Some were in Wisconsin. I was in Missouri with another brother named Kevin at the time. I think Dave Van White came up. I think he was in North Carolina by that point. So we kind of came in the, from this triangular shape. We came to northern Indiana to help Dean and try to, try to fix his roof, try to help a brother out, and uh, we did that. And I just look back at that because that was friendship. <laughs> and, and I'm not boasting of me. I would boast of the other guys before that, but it was friendship. And Dean, would, would, all he wanted to do was help, and he, and he suffered with seizures and everything. And he wanted to get up on that roof, and we wouldn't let him because <laughs> you're not getting up here, and we get into a seizure or something. And, and uh, it was a dirty job. It was a rough job. We started, I think, I don't know if we got there on a Thursday night or Friday. I forget exactly how it went. But we worked hard. And, and a few of us stayed Monday, and we finished it. We finished the whole roof in like three days. And it was chopped up and all kinds of gables and everything and, and you know, additions over the years. And so it wasn't like a nice ranch roof with a nice pitch to it. 
it was pretty steep and pretty chopped up, but we got it done, praise the Lord. And um, underneath the, the asphalt shingles were cedar shakes. So I remember the first couple of days when we're tearing off stuff, we were like, I mean, it looked like we got run over by like some kind of asphalt machine. I mean, we were like just battered and covered in, looked like suit, looked like we were chimney workers or something. We go to the hotel, and we're walking down the hallway, and we also had matching shirts because I'd made up some matching shirts for us just for fun back then. But anyway, we're, and we're like, I mean, our faces are black, everything's black. And the guy that was working the hotel, he's like, what do you guys do? <laughs> like, you go to another, he's probably thinking, like, don't clog up the drains, man. I don't know, you guys got a lot of dirt on you. Um, I'm going to tell you, I don't remember a shower ever feeling so good as it did those nights. <laughs> we were just covered. There's a picture of me and Kevin Heil that I have in my office of, like, we're, like, we're like in the dean's kitchen at night for supper, and we both look like we've been hit by trucks because we just look like we're about to fall asleep, and we're just covered in black. We're just like, you know, anyway, it's a fun picture that I've kept over the years. But that was an expression of friendship because if you would have told me Dean needed something, I want to be there. I want to help. What can I do? How can I, how can I yes, I want to pray. Yes, I want to help. But, but even like, can I get there? How can I be there? And same with the other guys in that situation. And there would have been other guys that would have liked to have been there that didn't work. It doesn't always work. Uh, that's, that's understandable. But, but that, to me, that's, that's what I think of when I think of friendship. You know, I think of it goes deep. It goes into the place of, like, I'm going to be there. When you need it, I'm going to be there. How can I help you? And that's what I see Paul have with Aquila and Priscilla. Their attitude toward, I'm sure, many saints was, like, how can we help? What can we do? As we move on to the last few verses here, 21 through 23, it says, The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, the point I'm going to make here is, as we get down to verse 22, he talks about, O Lord, come. He's talking about those who love the Lord Jesus and, and so forth. And the first thing that we want to say, this whole section is really, in my mind, about loving the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all. That's, that's the main emphasis here. Love Jesus Christ. That's going to solve a lot of your problems. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Kind of that sentiment. And underneath that, we'll say that one who loves the Lord looks forward to the Lord's coming. We're going to talk about that expression, Maranatha, in just a moment. But at this point, Paul says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. What he's saying is, I'm signing my name with my own hand. And we know from other places in the New Testament, especially the end of Romans, Paul sometimes used an amanuensis, basically somebody who would write the letter for him as he dictated it. That was a common practice, something he apparently did. We're pretty confident. I mean, he says in some places he has some, he had some issues in his flesh, and some people think that was his eyesight because he talks about his eyesight. And when he writes the book of Galatians, he says, I write with really big letters, which is typical of somebody that can't see very well. They write with bigger font, right? Anybody that reads, <laughs> you get eyesight starts going, you want bigger font or better glasses. And so there's evidence that makes us think that he had some bad eyesight and that he also dictated a lot of his letters. But what he would do at some point is sign his name on it. And, and part of that is because of a verse I'll pull up on the screen from 2 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. There were people who would forge his name at times and forge letters from him. And I'm going to give you an example here. It's 2.2. 2. 
And it says, and it should be on the screen, maybe it's not in there, we having trouble maybe? Oh, there it is. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Thessalonians, they had a lot of, they were having some issues, they were having some eschatological issues, they were, they were not sure of the end time scenario, they thought they may have been in the tribulation period, and not sure what was all going on, and they, they had been getting letters from somebody, apparently, and he says, don't be troubled as if by letter, by us. So he's, some people were apparently forging Paul's name in his own lifetime. And Thessalonians is pretty early in his ministry, so it seemed to be some people may have been doing some forgery um, and giving people some, some bad theology. And so Paul made it his habit to sign to give it authenticity, that, that this is my mark. And, and it may be that he signed at the beginning of some letters when he may have wrote the greeting, he may have wrote the end. He may have still wrote some of the epistles in their totality. He certainly did with Galatians, we think. But, but here, it seems that maybe what's going on is he's been dictating this letter to somebody, and now in verse 21, he's like, okay, give me the letter, I'm going to sign it. And so verse 21 to the end is, is, is potentially, like what we think is, that was actually what he wrote with his pen. So, you know, I don't know. You wonder, like, maybe the original copy of 1 Corinthians was like a nice, fine font, and all of a sudden, like a big Paul, and maybe these last few comments... And it kind of reminds me of what I was telling you when I started about Dr. Nick signing that letter. You've got this font that came off the printer, then his signature, which is going to be written in cursive. He writes pretty neat, just in case you wonder. Maybe you've gotten one of those letters, by the way. If you want one, just donate to BBI. <laughs> I sure fire away to get one. <laughs> if you want his autograph, I wish he was here. If you want his autograph, that's a sure fire way to get it. You know, with every donation, you get an autograph letter from Dr. Robert Nix. I hope he watches this. <laughs> I'm going to earn myself a raise today here supporting BBI. No. Anyhow, we better keep moving here. But, but he's, it seems like he's taken over. He's writing the last few words. And, he, and he's been saying, greet each other. Hey, Aquila and Priscilla, they greet you. The churches of Asia greet you. Oh, and by the way, if you don't love the Lord, you're accursed. <laughs> I'm like, that's kind of a zinger. That seems like out of place. And it's like you still sense, even as Paul's writing, and he's been saying greetings, and he's signing off, there's like an urgency. There's a thought of like Corinthians. You got you to gotta get back. You got to get in the Lord's will on these things or you're going to be really hurting yourselves and everybody around you. And he's been telling them like the way you're living is not love. We're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 13 a little bit. But he says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed or anathema. And the word anathema means like devoted to destruction. It's kind of a strong, you're dedicated to this apart from God. Uh, so the idea of a curse seems to capture that. But it's kind of interesting. He throws this in at the end. And I think it was kind of a reminder and a little bit of admonishment that the main thing is your life should be characterized by loving Jesus Christ. And I think he's talking about the visible expression of our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the word for love in that verse is not the typical love of God word, agape. If you guys have ever heard of the, the Greek words for love, the two big ones are agape and phileo. And agape is like that unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the character and nature of God. It's how God demonstrates his own love in giving us his son. No greater love, no greater agape has any man than to lay down his life for another. It's the sacrificial, unconditional agape love. 
That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, love is kind. It's not rude. He told them earlier, you need agape love in your life. You need to live not for self, but for God and for others, and to have this unconditional love for each other in the body. But here, here in 1 Corinthians 16 and and in verse, um, what verse are we in here? Verse 22, it's not agape. It's phileo. He wants you to phileo toward Jesus Christ. This is the word that's sometimes talked about as brotherly love. It's a visible affection, a friendly love toward others. And he's saying we ought to have this for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of an interesting thing there that, you know, I think the idea may be like, you know, you say you agape Jesus, but do you phileo Jesus? You can say like, oh, yeah, Jesus is the main thing in my life. But does your life really look like it? Do you really show affection for him and the way you conduct yourself and the way you conduct others? And one of the main ways that we show our affection and our love for Jesus Christ is by our affection and love for his people. And I think what he's telling the Corinthians is, you cannot tell me, being divided, being at each other's throats, and, and what the things you're condoning in this church... You cannot tell me that this is loving Jesus Christ. It is totally opposite of what love for Jesus Christ looks like. And I think it's one last admonition that if if somebody's going to live their life apart from a love toward the Lord, and that's demonstrated through all these actions, then they're accursed. And that has the idea of judgment and wrath coming. And and I do think he's talking about believers here. I don't think he's talking about the world. The world's already condemned. There's no... You wouldn't expect the world to anything Jesus Christ, let alone phileo love the, world, the Jesus Christ. The world, that's, not, that's not the world. He's talking about believers, people who say, I'm a Christian, but they're not going to live out the love of Jesus. He says, I think he's saying, you don't go along with those people. I think it goes back to some similar things he said in the epistle, 1 Corinthians 5. He talked about a man involved in gross immorality. He said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Because the best thing for that person in just gross and outwardly sin is is for the church to say it's not loving for us to condone what you're doing and let you continue to do it that would not be loving it would be unloving and i think that's a similar thought here that paul's capturing and as he's as he's signing off is if we don't love the lord jesus christ then we're living like you might say we're living like an accursed we're living over here in this area and we're we're actually kind of shutting God out of our lives, and we're living for self, and we're living for the flesh. And he says, that's an accursed place to be. That's an accursed state in which to live. And I think that's what he's maybe getting at there. And just as quick, though, you know, he said, greetings, greetings, love the Lord or your anathema, Maranatha! (laughs) Right after the word anathema comes the word Maranatha in in the original, and uh, it's actually... Maranatha is an Aramaic expression, but it means, O Lord, come. And in your Bibles, it probably just says, O Lord, come. It might transliterate Maranatha, but even so, the Lord comes. And I just think it's interesting. He says, if you don't love the Lord, you're cursed. O Lord, come. And it shows us just that anticipation that Paul had for Jesus Christ returning to take him home to heaven. That that's what he was looking forward to. And I think in one sense... You know, it kind of solves our problems. You know, Paul's been dealing with all these problems in Corinthians. And then he says, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're accursed. Oh, Lord, come and, and like sort it all out for it. Oh, Lord, come and like clean this mess up <laughs> that we've been making, you know, 
all of us in our lives, we, we probably at times make a mess of things, you know, and probably all of us have prayed for the rapture at times, like, get me out of this, Lord, and things like that. But we all should live in anticipation of the Lord. And that's where I said, one who loves the Lord looks forward to his coming because, I mean, that shapes your life. When you live in an anticipation for Jesus Christ to come at any moment, that's shaping your life. That's going to keep you in tune to him. That's going to keep your eyes on him and that love flowing for him of like, he's coming and I want to be living for him right now. Those things all connect. And, you know, Christmas is coming up. You've got six weeks and uh, you've got six weeks to get your shopping done. I've got copies of my Christmas list if you need it right here. But it's coming, right? And, you know, there's hardly a child that doesn't think about Christmas Day with just huge excitement, anticipation. And I don't know what the Aramaic expression for, oh, Christmas come would be, but that's probably what they would want to say, right? Oh, Christmas come, because <laughs> you can't wait. And they have this, like, positive expectation. Christmas morning's going to come, and there will be presents, and there will be fun, and there will be festivity. And, hey, I love it. I love Christmas time. I enjoy, like, the special season. It's different, the lights and all that stuff. I really just enjoy that, as long as it doesn't consume anybody. But I really enjoy just how we treat it special. But children, you know, they look forward to that day with a lot of anticipation. And I've always felt that the way a kid looks forward to Christmas ought to be the way a Christian looks forward to the Lord's return. Like, we just should be like, I can't wait, because there's going to be presents, and there's going to be, no. but there's gonna, we're going to see him. He's going to come. He's going to take us home to heaven. And there's no greater thing that we're looking forward to than that. And that word captures it. And that's what Paul looked forward to. And he's, and he's really quickly, as he's signing off the letter, he's shifting the Corinthians' gaze once again. He's coming soon, by the way. And this ought to be your cry. And it ought to be our cry. Maranatha, oh Lord, come. Because there's no greater day than that ahead for us. So one who loves the Lord loves his coming. And the final thing we'll say, one who loves the Lord loves others. That's been a reoccurring theme through the book. But as he ends the epistle, he says... The grace of Jesus Christ with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And I just, I I love how Paul signs off. First of all, he always wants to get out grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. He always, he starts every epistle with grace from Christ, and he ends every epistle with grace from Christ. It always begins and ends with grace. That's a picture of the Christian life. It, it, It begins and it ends with grace, grace every day. The Christian life is accessing our grace in our walk. And Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That verse tells us we can access God's grace at all times by faith. The Christian life is to be one of living out, living in the grace of Jesus Christ and living out the grace of Jesus Christ. And we never want to ignore that or, or give it the emphasis due. So he says grace, and then he says, and, and also my love. And now this is an unusual farewell. Paul doesn't usually write, my love be with you, but he did to the Corinthians. And I think it's because he had to discipline them, and he wants them to know, in everything I've said, and everything I do, please understand, this was because of my love for you. My love for you. Later, he'll write to them again, 2 Corinthians, and in 12.15, he writes this, And I will very glad spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love, the less 
I am loved. Paul just wanted to make sure, you, I'm, I'm coming from love. And that's, that, again, that's always the characteristic of the Christian life. You can go and you can, you know, go say something to somebody, but is it, is it, is it in love? Would Jesus Christ say, yeah, that, that was in love? Or is it in the flesh or out of ego or out of some other motivation? It always comes back to, is it in love? But just like this epistle, love will tell you the truth so you know, so it doesn't destroy your life. And it doesn't destroy the lives of others. I'll just end with this. A little, I've probably told this story before, but I think it was my second year when I was a student at Brain Bible Institute. And I was, uh, back then in that day, Pastor Paul Sadler taught at the Institute. Now, he had been a pastor here years ago. And if you don't know that name, he was a fairly well-known speaker and author um, within our fellowship of churches and everything. A lot of us knew him. There's books of him on the book table, I'm sure, at least one or two of them, if not more, that he wrote. And, you know, so he was a very learned man, very good speaker. And I was a second-year student at BBI. I was leaving the school. This was when it was at the Berean Bible Society in Germantown on Mequon Road there. And I backed right into Pastor Sadler's van. Crunch! I, and I'm, the, my memory's fading whether I got his back his headlight or his taillight? I don't remember which way the van. It may have been his taillight. Of course, on the back of the van, you know, the license plate was Berean. <laughs> that was the, anyway, it may, it may have been the company vehicle, but I, I, I clunked it, you know, just enough to break the, the, the headlight, I think it was. So, all right, I go back in. I go up to Pastor Sadler, and I'm like, I just backed right into your van, broke the headlight. Like, I'll pay for it. You only take, I'll take care, I'll pay for it. He's like, no, Andy, no, no, I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. I'm like, no, I'll pay for it. No, no, I'll take care of it. Just grace, exuding from the guy like twice as tall as me. <laughs> tall guy, he wasn't that tall, but, but just grace and love exuded from that guy when you meet him. And he was always so warm and hospitable and would greet you and pay attention to you and talk to you. And just the things we've been talking about. And you know what that did for me? I mean, I appreciated Pastor Sadler. But from that day forward, I appreciated him him even more. Because I had experienced love and grace in that moment of like, I was sheepish and felt like an idiot. (laughs) I got to go tell this guy, broke his headlight. And uh, anyway, but he he just took it all with grace, showed grace. And that spoke to me more personally, probably than anything he'd ever preached, because it's just in his actions, everything he said was affirmed by what he did. And how important that is for all of us, that our lives match our message when it comes to love, grace, and reaching out to others in the, in the body and beyond. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our passage. As we say farewell to this book for this time, and thank you for all the things that you revealed to us in this book. And we pray we just continue to take things at heart, and as we leave today, to have those takeaways, to give our attention to people, develop friendships, and to continue to remember to keep our eyes focused on you, your coming, and the love we can share with others. So, Lord, we just pray we continue to be faithful to you, work in our hearts to this end. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.